0: Sure, everybody part two it's the end of
1: the empire uh redo uh take two um i'm scott horton i'm editorial director of the libertarian uh no editorial director of com. director of the libertarian institute and i host the scott horton show and other stuff
0: uh he's pete canonez tell him about yourself pete i'm the managing editor at the libertarian institute host of the free man beyond the wall podcast and the most divisive man in libertarianism according the to the most scott divisive
1: horton. man in libertarianism, uh, for sure. Not by the
0: end of this episode, though. I'm working on it.
1: We're gonna, we're gonna all be on the same page I'm, by I'm the end. I'm working
0: on it. I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to do this. Cato, this is a, this is the worst possible take you could come up with. And I know you have good people over there, and I know you could be better. So be yeah. better. Exactly. Yeah. Let the people who are better on it talk. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh, there's, you, know, there's, you know what I figured out today what was that really Cato and and reason when they piss everybody off, it's just that they're really bad on culture. They're very left on culture when they talk about what they talk about a lot of other things. I mean, Cato gets you know, the whole foreign policy department, except for like one person there is re- really good. And, you know, reason has some really good articles, um, you know for the mostly. But when they talk about culture, that's when they piss people. A lot of libertarians off because a lot of the libertarians came from the right and their right wing sensibilities get, get you know get rubbed the wrong way when, you know, they're somebody's saying how great cuties is on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Did they run that at reason? I guess. I yeah.
0: Yeah. It was a defense of that Jeez. Yeah, well. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, look,
1: I just I look at it like um, uh, I can't use that metaphor on this show. It would have been funny, but I'm gonna pass it up. Uh, I look, I I just um, you know what? I look at it like Star Wars. I just watch around Jar Jar Binks. There is no Jar Jar Binks, but still, I need to know how Palpatine got himself elected Chancellor. You know, as part of the story. Did so, you see
0: that picture the other day of it was a it was a cartoon of han and boba fett shaking hands and jar jars in the um oh the in carbonite. the carbonite yeah
1: <laughs> all right you got a deal Let's work this out. <laughs> see soul getting past that sectarianism you know what i mean To work with these bounty hunters oh, um, yeah. yeah so listen um but that's how i do look i mean and when you say okay hey, i don't want you to name namo who you don't like but i can just say i i love their foreign policy department you got it. Yeah. Ted and Doug write for us now at antiwar.com at the same time that they're still at Cato. You know, Doug was gone from Cato for a little while and, and we had him. Now he's back at Cato and we still have him. I mean, that's huge in the, in the history of the libertarian civil wars to have uh Doug and Ted writing for antiwar.com is huge. And it's so important to me and Eric and the rest of the crew that they are part of antiwar.com. But then, you know, John Glazer is great. He used to work for us back when, um, Glazer, of course, is great. And um, Trevor Thrall and Chris Coyne and Abby Hall. And um, uh, did I say Justin Logan? I always forget Justin Logan. He was gone for a little while. Now he's back. I mean, he's been solid on so much stuff. I, you know, I don't have to agree with them on every little thing or whatever, but I pretty much do. Um, but they just have a great crew over there. And the, there are people at Cato who are bad on foreign policy, but they're not in the foreign policy department as far as I know. So who cares about that kind of thing? And anyway, I just look for the good in, in all the libertarian institutions. See, I think a lot of libertarians maybe don't know that there are really bad libertarian civil wars that go back to the days. But my thing is, I was in elementary school back in the early 1980s, so I don't care about any of that stuff. And I have friends at every libertarian institution and get along with every libertarian website. Maybe one exception or something, but I, I like the FFF and I like Cato and I like the Independent Institute and I like Mises and LRC. And, you know, I think pretty much I have, you know, a friend where at least one person at all those organizations likes me too, kind of deal. And, uh, and you know, I'll tell you a story, Pete, when when we first created the Libertarian Institute, I don't know if you know about this. It was, you know, of course, me and Sheldon and Will Grigg. And um, one of the first things that I wanted to do was I wanted to test out just how far I could get with this whole I'm not enemies with anybody thing. So... <laughs> what I tried to do is I tried to get all the libertarian organizations, the, the major ones I could think of, pretty much everybody I just named there, I guess, and the Libertarian Party, too. And I wanted to get everybody to all endorse. I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure if it was a war powers resolution, but it was some kind of resolution against the war in Yemen. And I was saying, look, this is such an important thing. Can we all do this? Like, let, And then wouldn't that be cool? if the entire libertarian, you know, official libertarian community in the country and including the LP all came out and said this is the highest priority is ending this most horrible thing that our government is doing right now and every single like leader of every single one of the groups told me no way. Only if you change this this or this or I'm afraid of the IRS or you know what the best one was diced who used to work for Ron Paul as his chief of staff on Capitol Hill. He told me you know what'll happen is We support this thing and then they'll change what it says after we came out and said it was a good idea. So this is the kind of thing we, so anyway, everybody had a reason reason magazine. I don't even think they answered me. Cato said, no, everybody said, no, Uh, everybody said, no. So that was my like first experiment with, I know let's try to unite the libertarian movement, but, but still, if I can't unite it, I at least don't want to divide it. You know what I mean? I don't. and, And I think because of Ron Paul, of course, there's so many more libertarians in America now in all 50 states and everywhere. I mean, it used to be like one guy in every neighborhood. Now it's 10 guys in every neighborhood who are into this stuff, you know, more than that. Um, and so uh, that just means the potential for, for our ability to affect change in this country is is much greater. And I think, you know, the less we're fighting amongst each other. And, you know, by the way, it's okay to call people out for different things and say, Hey man, this isn't right. And you should stop and whatever. But just the point is to try to not be a jerk about it and to try to not use the groups that people are part of as a stand-in where now it's like groups pitted against groups. And now these permanent grudges between groups and stuff where there's just no need to do that. And, um, and you know, here's the thing too, right? Like, uh, I think we talked about this before, like a long time ago, I don't even know on a show or just you and me talking about it that, you know, maybe if you could get every libertarian to all focus on one thing, you could like really do a lot better at moving that one goalpost, whatever it is, but you can't. So
0: yeah, you can't, like, you, whatever you can't it, cats. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
1: You're not going to do that. So it, what you should do is, you know, the Ron Paul strategy is you do whatever you want. You know, people would say to Ron Paul, what do I do? And he would always say. You do what you think is right, you know, uh, what you think works for you. So there can be all kinds of discussions about what may or may not be a better strategy. Um, look, at the,
0: look at the last comment there by Stephen Stern.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I guess we could have uh, mentioned at the start that it's our fun drive. Uh, very <laughs> nice. Thank you, Stephen. So, yeah, but um, anyways, and and you know what? Our little old institute, we've been around for, oh, geez, five years now set it up at the yeah right around this time 2016 or so um but we're still like young and new and and have basically a pretty fresh crew here guys uh we keep adding good people and um and i think the potential for the libertarian institute is a lot like the potential for the libertarian movement where the sky's the limit right now you know whatever's our imagination we could you know get done and that's because of people like steven who you know i think i asked harley earlier it's more than 100 different donors have donated and given us thousands of dollars so far for our fun drive. I think, I'm not sure exactly how much it is so far. I need to be doing a better job pe- keeping track of that. But it's been going very well. And I shipped out a pickup truck full of books today. I signed awesome. you know, a couple of hundred books and, and packed them all up. And then plus that's, man, it was really exciting, dude. See, I like this job. I'm sitting here packing up copies of Will Griggs' book, No Quarter, and copies of Sheldon Richmond's book, what social animals owe to each other and coming to Palestine. And I'm like, yes, Dude, these people are going to be reading Sheldon Richmond and Will Grigg. And yeah, me too. I like that part, but it's really cool. It's really exciting that, you know, Dude, that gets to be, you know, one of my things that I do is I send out books by Sheldon Richmond and Will Grigg.
0: It's been, and half, it's been almost four and a half years since Will died. I know. Um, that's, that's we're not through with him yet, though. Um,
1: yeah. I, you know, I keep I keep saying this, and Steve Murray Rothbard. <laughs> just keep about books. And- <laughs> Listen, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Will Griggs is going to live forever, dude. There's, there's too many people who will never forget him, and they're going to pass on what they have learned, and that's just like that. I mean, he's one of those
0: guys. um, his podcast about Sheriff Clark, the the, the guy from Milwaukee. Uh It's one of the greatest podcasts I've ever heard in my life. I've I was literally like my I was making fists. I was driving and my I was white knuckling. I was so mad at everything he was saying about about the abuses of power that that guy has done. And he and uh, he's a hero to so many. But it's like, Jesus, he somebody insulted him on a plane and he decided to make a project out of the guy. Yeah, what a scumbag.
1: Yeah, boy. And Will was, he was the best. Listen, people should know that you look at the right-hand archive or the right-hand margin at the Libertarian Institute site. And there's Will Grigg's name is down there at the bottom, the Will Grigg archive. And that's all of his writings that we could find from anywhere. You know, in fact, now that I understand the Wayback Machine and archive.is and all of that better, maybe there's a way we can go back and see if we can find some more off of the Birch blog. There was some other stuff on there.
0: I just want to tell people don't go back and read the Will Griggs stuff because you'll see how much I've stolen from him over the years. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we we don't want you to get in trouble. Um, (laughs) No, but listen, he's he's a great example for you to try to live up to. I mean, I know I do, and I know I fall far short, but, um, you know, and for people who don't know, there are people who have no idea who we're talking about. I mean, this is the former editor of the New American Magazine. He was the best John Bircher always. And then you know, he moved to the libertarian away from the right and to the libertarian in the W. Bush years. And, you know, was essentially, by the end of his life, he was essentially just, you know, like a plumb line Rothbardian uh, libertarian anarchist, I believe, um, with some constitutionalist sensibilities and so forth.
0: But um, you want to hear something he was, crazy? A, and, a, friend, a friend of mine, um, I think he moved recently. There's a John Birch bookstore, like not far from where he lives.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's yeah, a bird. Like an American was opinion, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's Where is that?
1: In San Antonio, or where is it?
0: Oh, no. He, does, he doesn't want me to say where it is. Oh, okay. It. No, yeah, yeah. There I used was, to be
1: an American opinion bookstore cool. in San Antonio. I've been there. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, I got a bunch of stuff from them, actually, one time. <laughs> Boy, that was a long time ago. Um, but no, so listen, the point about Will Grig is he was the very smartest one of us, the very most educated one of us, and the absolutely the most articulate one of us in print and out loud. And he's the kind of guy where he could be talking off the top of his head, you know, a conversation on the phone. He sounds like he's reading a script that he's memorized of, of, you know, whatever it is. Anyway, I, I always say the same thing about him. The way I talk about, like, here's the history of the W Bush years or whatever. That's how he talked about everything that ever happened in history, anywhere in the world. He knew everything that had ever happened. And I don't know how he did it. I mean, I don't know which years it was that he spent locked in what basement reading everything that ever took place. Like, you know, you see those giant old studies with all those leather bound books, whatever. Nobody knows what's in them all. He read all of those, dude. He read read everything. He read everything.
0: Edlam said his office at the New American was just a wreck, it was just like everything everywhere. It was like, I'm like, wait a minute, how could that be? He seemed like everything would be like in its place. And it probably everything was in its place. Right. But yeah, it was it, just, yeah. it was just right. insane, you know? Yeah. Um, and listen, so um, we have his full archive
1: is at the Institute and that includes his, uh, his radio show and liberty minute plus this other podcast whatever other audio any audio and any articles we could find by him anywhere in the world we scoured to try to put on there um and that and then there's a guy we have a new intern who the last i heard harley had tasked him with going through and writing up descriptions for all of those liberty minute episodes of what they're all about and all of that so they're not just dates but have better description. so i'm not sure how far along that project is but that's going to be something that we work on forever, you know, in trying to make the Will Gregg archive as complete as we possibly can. And we do have stuff, you know, PDF files of newspaper columns that he, you know, pictures of newspaper columns that he wrote in 1990 and stuff. I mean, we have everything. Um, you know, well, everything we can find, we're working on. And then also, you mentioned Thomas Edlam, and this is the real point. Thomas Edlam is working on one last Will Gregg book. I think we talked about even one more after that, but I'm not so sure about that. But there's one more that's called The Stolen Life of Christopher Tapp. Did I say this two weeks ago?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um. And anyway, so
1: that's going to be great. It's this poor kid that the cops framed up for this horrible murder.
0: Yeah, I've read the all the right all
1: along, And, and we're going to put that out sometime soon. And speaking of that, we're putting out a book by Keith Knight here real soon, too. And Keith, if you're watching, I'm working on it, buddy. trust me, man. I'm not, I I got you on the medium burner, not the back burner. You're right here. I'm, I'm, and, and the reason, the only reason that Keith's book is not the very top of my work order list right now is because I'm finishing up the audio book of Enough Already. And I sent the last of my punch-ins to my genius and he's putting his juice on them tonight. And then I'm punching those into the files. And then I'm sorry to say for my own sake and for all y'all's I got to sit and listen through the whole damn thing one more time and make sure <laughs> before I send it out.
0: Well, I have an um, entry in Keith's book.
1: Yeah. And I do too, but you know what? I hate my entry in Keith's really? book. I want to change it to something else, but then I thought, you know what? I haven't ever written anything else that would fit where he wants it. Mm-hmm. But I don't like the article I wrote. I mean, I agree with it mostly, but
0: kind of not. Marshall's asking who did the, who did the artwork for no quarter.
1: Oh, um, oh, great. Thanks a lot for putting me on the spot. Uh, um, his name is Scott Alberts. Man, I was going to choke on that last name for a second. I felt really bad. His name is Scott Alberts. And so the the art was my idea, I think, pretty much. You know, it was, yeah, him sitting at the desk. Yeah, hold it closer, there. We can see, man. This is him sitting on the desk and he's pounding on the keyboard. He's mad. So the keyboard's like bent that because under the force of his massive hands, you know, smashing the truth out and the on the kitty's on his shoulder. But yeah, and he's got a kitty on his shoulder and he's got like this great, like mad as hell, but still like great Will Grigg, cool guy smile on his face. And it's just, it's great. And I mean, you know, I always wondered, like, how is a sketch artist for the cops? Like, how could some dingbat go? Well, I don't know. He had kind of a skinny nose and a, and then he had some eyebrows and, what, and then somehow they get that right. And, and I always wonder, like, you got to be an incredible artist to figure out what somebody means when they're trying to describe a stranger's face like that. How could that possibly be right? Sometimes they're really close. Um, but uh, that's what this was. That's how I felt about this. I was like, how did this guy... Like he has, I mean, I described it pretty well, I guess. But man, he just took the snapshot right out of my brain and turned it into a cartoon and stuck it right on there. It was incredible. So thank you to him for that. And 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 Marshall, if you need to know, you know, for for reasons, then contact me. Uh, just email me. I'm easy to get a hold of, and uh, and I'll put you in touch with the guy if you need him for something. But if you just you know think he deserves credit, I agree with you, and that's it. And and yeah, so Keith's book. Can I, I guess I should say. Should I say what Keith's book is, or is not? Sure. I don't it? think I don't
0: think he's yeah. I don't think he's hiding it. Well, maybe he is. Just give an overview.
1: Yeah, it's it's the voluntarius the voluntariist handbook. So I think you know Malice put out the anarchist handbook that has all different kinds of anarchists in it, and I think Keith wanted one that's just libertarian anarchists who you know understand economics and also don't want to state. So. Um, <laughs> And there's just a ton of great stuff in there. I have not had a chance to review every last bit of it, which I'm going to have to do. But uh, but I, yeah, I've looked at the table of contents and it's great. And I mean, he did have good enough sense to add something by you and I in there, so that's pretty Um But you and me, I was... People say, you know, when you say you and I or me, you, what would you say if you weren't including the other person, oh, right. I or me? Yeah. But I don't know until after the fact, and then I gotta go back and look, right? Yeah. And I never understood uh, that. That was
0: one of the, that. That was one of the only um, things I remembered from like English class in school was that you know, you, you had to remove uh, remove the other person and then what would you say? I remember that. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. it's
1: but it's always too late
0: though. By then, you know what I mean. You already said it. Now
1: you can tell whether you got it right or wrong. But how are you going to do that in real time? Like if you're writing, that's one thing. But yeah. anyway, don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um okay uh, I mentioned the audiobook before we talk about Julian Assange I just wanted to mention um, that I'm really bothered by the fact that it's taking so long for Tom woods to put out the footage of the great party in Orlando a couple of weeks ago because I keep having dreams about about like people coming to me and and talking like either like saying that my my bit was funny or that it wasn't or Or sometimes in the dream, I still haven't gone up to do my bit yet, and I'm all nervous. And then I kind of wake up and go, dude, that was in the past. But I need that closure. I need to see the footage and see whether I think I was funny or not. So some people said I was funny. And the wife said people were laughing, but I don't really trust her.
0: Why? Because Russians don't have senses of humor? Huh? Why? Because Russians don't have senses of humor?
1: Uh, No, this is just particular to her. (laughs) She's ukrainian but um
0: I, well yeah, yeah yeah but um well but tom, no, tom a, put out that's 1996
1: take on what happened any, on anything
0: <laughs> tom put out 1996 today so he's got three more oh okay Releases 2000 so
1: right that was the problem i looked i was like he's not even at 2000 yet what is this <laughs> thing going on? so i got up there and i told jokes but i'm not sure if i was funny or not
0: it was funny. I mean, of course, I was drunk, so I thought I thought anything was funny, but, um, you know, it was funny.
1: <laughs> I know. Did I already tell you this? Sorry if I repeat myself. I don't know who I say things to. I, I think things, but I don't remember who I already said them out loud about. Or near. Um, so I realized, though, I shouldn't have read everything off of my phone the way I did it. If I, <laughs> if I had to, I realized after I was done that I really probably could have reduced all of my jokes to just one word talking points on a page and then i would remember what the joke was that's how i do my speeches like if i'm talking about the reagan years it just says iran iraq war and i know everything i want to say about that you know what i mean i should have done that i'd gone over the jokes enough times or you could have reduced it all down it, like that huh
0: you could have emailed it to the front desk and they would have printed it out for you i had stuff i had stuff emailed to the front desk and had oh, print no, it printed out but for I don't mean- right there
1: I mean, whether it's printed out or on the phone, I just mean whether I was like reading a whole thing right, right. out or whether I was like, just had my talking point to remember what I want to say and then just try to ad lib it, you know, a right. little more organically kind of thing. And I think if I had reduced my big speech down to just talking points and I had rehearsed it a couple of times like that, now I think I would have done better. I could have done it that way. And instead, I kind of was reading the whole thing off. So I don't know. But, you know, what? I'm not a stand-up comedian, so that's the best I could do. Screw you guys if you don't like it. But I think it was all right.
0: I remember you on a show talking about why you wouldn't be a stand-up comedian. and That was hilarious unto itself.
1: <laughs> you know, I got some comments about that, that that was pretty funny.
0: Dude, you know? that was hilarious. But then again, I mean, that, that those guys are hilarious, too. So it's like... That's true. A, yeah, it was, it was a perfect the atmosphere. Storm. You know? Yeah, it was a yeah, perfect no, storm.
1: You know, I learned a long time ago that I can be pretty funny off the cuff sometimes. But if I do like kind of a rehearsed joke, something I already told before, and I try to do it again, like if I got a good laugh the first time, and then I try to like recreate the same kind, it doesn't really work as well. Yeah. That- like right now, I was just thinking, you want to hear my Willie Nelson joke? And I thought, you know what? It's not gonna fly. <laughs> it's not gonna. It's not gonna- <laughs> I'm just not gonna do it. It's
0: anymore. not gonna land.
1: <laughs> it. You know, it's a good joke to me, and it was good the first time I told it. People laughed at it the first time I said it to them. But uh, yeah, I don't think I could like.
0: All right, let's talk about Julian Assange.
1: Dave's job. Um, Okay, here's the thing with Julian Assange. There's a lot of things, but just in case for people who don't know, of course, this is the guy, the founder and director of WikiLeaks. He was um, essentially framed up on some bogus sexual assault charges under the pressure uh, by the Swedish government under the pressure of the United States government, that we gotta find something to hold this guy on. And so they trumped up some sexual assault charges and he agreed to go to Sweden to be questioned on those charges. And there weren't even charges, frankly, they are just, um, to be clear about that, they were just accusations and you know, you're a suspect wanted for questioning kind of thing is all. And um, so then what happened was, uh, he said, as long as he could get assurances that um, he would not be extradited to the United States, like a sworn promise. He would not be extradited on, for espionage charges to the United States. Then he would go to Sweden and talk to them. And uh, they would not give him those assurances. He invited them to come to England and talk to him, uh, but they wouldn't come to England and talk to him. Even though the Swiss and the English cooperate like that all the time, they didn't want to do that. They're trying to get their hands on him. So eventually, he skipped bail in the UK. Where you know they had him on a holding pattern thing for answering the charges from or the accusations from the Swedes, and he dipped and went to the Ecuadorian embassy there in the UK, and there he was holed up under he was given asylum by the previous government um, of Ecuador um, under Correa, I think it is right, and um, and then he was holed up in there for seven years, and the whole time he was holed up in there. People who were on his side and knew the truth and are honest about this, like, for example, his fan club over at antiwar.com and so forth. We knew that it was true all along. And they admitted it from time to time in the press that they were at least looking at espionage charges against him. And, you know, that can be a life sentence. And um, then the accusation, you know, the mainstream media uh, interpretation of all of this. You know, was that, oh, yeah, right. You know, Assange is just a conspiracy kook. And, you know, he's just uh, fantasizing on his messiah complex and his megalomania that, oh, yeah, sure. Like the Americans are going to indict you for espionage. He's just hiding from his sexual assault accusations, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turned out that wasn't true at all. Uh, In fact, the Obama government had a grand jury. And they investigated and investigated. They ended up not charging with espionage, but they almost did. They came right up to, you know, arguing, you know, big argument on the decision of whether to do it or not. And they ran up. This is extremely important. They ran up against what they called the New York Times problem. And that was the fact is, Pete, Assange is a publisher. He is not a leaker. He is a leakey. And in America, we don't have an official Secrets Act. We have an Espionage Act. And the Espionage Act, in fact, is written so broadly that it does cover anybody. But it's never been used that way. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they have used espionage mercilessly against government leakers, beginning with Daniel Ellsberg, who they tried to give life. Um, but, and by the way, he was not acquitted. He was facing life. But what happened was Nixon hired Cuban hitmen to murder him, and also tried to bribe the judge with a Supreme Court seat. And the judge said, "That's it. You're free to go. I'm not. This we're not doing this anymore." Kind of thing. So um, that was what happened to him. But then uh, under Bush and under Obama, especially under Obama, they prosecuted you know I don't know a dozen or more uh, whistleblowers under the Espionage Act. Obama prosecuted more than all other presidents combined uh, before him. And, uh, you know, including John Kiriakou and uh, uh, Drake and uh, Thomas Drake, the National Security Agency whistleblower, um, and, uh, of course, uh, uh, Chelsea Manning for leaking the stuff to Assange. Anyway, so they're trying to conflate Assange with Manning here. When Manning is the leaker and Assange is the leaky. And the Obama government came up against the actual reality and said, well, look, if we publish, if, if we prosecute Assange under the Espionage Act for publishing this stuff, then the New York Times is liable for the same thing. And guess what? He worked as partners on the Iraq and Afghan war logs and State Department cables with the New York Times. And they published this stuff in cooperation with him. And so the Obama government was looking for a distinction with a difference and they couldn't find it. Well, the Trump government said, screw that. We don't care about that anyway. Forget the New York Times problem. We want to prosecute this guy. And their way around the New York Times problem was that Mike Pompeo, when he was the head of the CIA, said, these guys are, uh, WikiLeaks is a hostile non-state intelligence agency. I forgot the exact phrase, but that's very close to what he said. Well, that doesn't mean anything. A non-state intelligence agency. Yeah, that publishes their stuff open source for the public. In other words, it's a newspaper. It's an internet. It's the Drudge Report. It's it's indistinguishable from the New York Times uh, website. You know, from WashingtonPost.com or WallStreetJournal.com. There's, you know, they have no argument, really. WSJ, I guess. Um, so... Um, but they've done it right. They've, they've indicted him on seven on 18 total charges. One of my guests was a computer crime and 17 of them are Espionage Act charges. And then they went in there they raided the Ecuadorian embassy. There was a change in government in Ecuador and the new guy was compliant. And they went in there and they grabbed him and they put him in solitary confinement in the Belmarsh prison where they hold al-Qaeda terrorists and people like that. You know, and, you know, above maximum security type conditions there, uh, you know, super max conditions, 23 hours a day in solitary confinement, essentially. And importantly, um, uh, oh man, let me get my times straight in my head here. A, I'm going to say it was earlier this year. It was not last fall. It must've been this spring when uh, i'm I'm so sorry why that's not uh thumb-tacked onto my timeline in my brain where it belongs exactly um i'm I'm fairly sure it was earlier this year that yeah it must have just been a few months ago that the um i guess they had some hearings last year, but the decision came this year um and the judge whose name was barrister, which is a bit confusing because that's what they call a lawyer or whatever but um the judge ruled that assange cannot be um extradited to the United States. And the reason why is because of the barbarian conditions in American prisons. And that this guy has uh, some sort of severe case of autism and depression and is suicidal. And if they lock him up in the supermax or in one of these other prisons under what they call the CMUs, the communications management units, or the SAMs, the special administrative measures, That, you know, this is, you know, administrative, you know, sounds like something out of Israel, right? Administrative detention, this kind of thing. This is where, you know, people are treated beyond supermax conditions, where they're not allowed to talk with anyone. They're, you know, completely locked away from the outside world. The whole theory is that everyone in there is Omar Abdel Rahman from Islamic Jihad trying to send secret messages to his followers back to commit terrorist attacks and whatever. And then they just pretend that that applies to everybody in there. I've done shows on this in the past. There was this great reporter named Potter. um, Sorry, I forget his first name. It's almost certain as Potter, who did great work on this, how they had leftist activists who were like earth first and animal liberation activists and stuff locked up there under these uh, communication management units and these special administrative measures, where they, they can't even talk to their lawyers, they can't talk to their families, you know, their visitation is you know, extremely limited their communications. You know, anyway. So the judge ruled based on the testimony of these um, psychiatrists that she's afraid that because America's prison system is so barbaric and lawless that he might kill himself, and under British law, that's a reason enough to deny extradition. So now, what's happened yesterday and today is the American government. Is appealing that and arguing against that. And they spent all day yesterday making their case essentially against the judge's ruling and saying that she ruled based on the wrong criteria and this kind of thing. And then um, also trying to attack the psychiatrist who had diagnosed Assange, I guess, in the most severe way compared to the other psychiatrists. And, um, And then today the uh, and, and I'm sorry that I'm, I'm a little bit behind on today's news, but I know today was Assange's attorney's chances, you know, to push back on those things and argue against the case that the, um, that the uh, prosecutors made. So one of the things that was funny about it was this is from, by the way, I'm getting, you know, all of this coverage it comes from um, um, uh, Kevin Costola, the great Kevin Costola. It's, um, G O S Z T O L A, and it's just K Gotstola is his Twitter feed. I'm looking right at it. Let me make sure that's right. It's K Gossz Tola, okay? G O S Z T O L A, um, and he's he had the you know access to the video stream press pass to the video stream, and he took minute notes you know live blogging it on Twitter all day yesterday and today, and um, and then he also writes at thedissenter.org. And he had a great piece. I read his piece, um, you know, earlier this afternoon, on uh, what happened yesterday. And I'm sure he'll have a new piece. And I'm going to interview him tomorrow on my show, so um, we'll have that for you as soon as I can. Um, oh, but one of the things um, that they, the the um, American lawyer, was saying, you know, Judge, there's no reason to believe that um, Assange would be held in a supermax, and and the the U.S. government offers its assurances that he will not be held in a supermax, and he will not be held in a CMU, and he will not be held under uh, the SAMs. And, um, And then his argument was those assurances are to be taken as legally binding, or you are to take them as factual or something. You're not allowed to say, well, that's just a promise. You have to accept it. And then I think Assange's uh, lawyers were arguing opposite of that, that you don't have to accept it. And I think the Americans were even promising that if he's convicted, they'll send him to Australia and he'll serve time in Australia, not here. Um, and they, they also said, why, look at the very light sentences that were given to Daniel Hale and reality winner that they only got I'm sorry dozens of months. I think Hale got fifty you know 15 months with you know a dozen months plus a little bit and then reality winner I think got 36 months right um so three years that's not that light of a sentence you know um but uh and then they also argued that hey judge you know if you extradite them that could be the first step to setting them free because Maybe Assange could argue that he hadn't gotten a speedy trial, or maybe he could argue that the First Amendment protects what he did, and then the charges will be dismissed and he'll be free to go. What? That's the argument of the prosecutor, the American lawyer arguing, turned him over to us, is that, hey, he's got a very good chance of getting out of this anyway. We hardly have a case. We haven't given him a speedy trial. We, we, everybody knows the first amendment protects publishers. What? And I mean, if that works, if they hide behind that to say that they're convinced then that it's okay to let him go, then that would be an atrocity itself. You know, I mean, that is just absolutely absurd for them. If, if they're making that argument, then they ought to just drop the charges. Then if you're telling me you, you concede didn't get a fair trial, and that the First Amendment, the inviolate First Amendment of the American Constitution says that you can publish secrets if you want to, essentially, um, then drop the charges and let the whole thing slide. You know, it's crazy that they're doing this. Oh, and by the way, too, um, they kept him out of the room and, and um, his wife, disputed, they, I think they claimed that, well, he was sick and couldn't attend. And his wife said that wasn't true. He wanted to attend and they wouldn't let him. Um, but Kevin did say that he appeared very tired and was like leaning on his hand and, you know, not looking good. So I don't know if he like when they say sick, does that mean didn't feel well? Because they gave him like extra runny eggs this morning or that means like there's something really wrong with him or, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's probably safe to assume the worst there. I don't know. Um, and then. um uh only other things on my list here to mention is, and then I'll ask my brain if there's something else, but uh, uh the murder plots. There's this new story that came out, Isakov and friends writing at Yahoo News, put out a story a couple of weeks ago, like two, three weeks ago now, about all the CIA plans to murder this guy and how they really meant to do it. They wanted to do it and they were trying to figure out ways to do it. And of course... There's endless reporting before this by um, Max Blumenthal at the Gray Zone and others as well about um, the spies, the Spanish mercenary group, spy group that was sent to spy on this guy. And then the CIA was using Sheldon Adelson and his private security company in Las Vegas as the cutouts to, you know, partially uh, to spy on Assange. And when he's speaking with his lawyers, Pete which means that you can't prosecute them then. That ain't fair. You don't get to prosecute a guy after the executive branch spied on him and his lawyers talking together. You know, that's there's got to be an exclusionary rule there. I don't know the case law, but I know there must be, you know, that you just can't do that. It used to be people say, hey, this is America, man. And that meant that you can't do that. You can do some things, but you can't do that. But I don't know, maybe they can uh, but it sure seems like they're way over the line here. And then I guess the last thing I'll say about this is look at the press corps. You know, that son of a bitch, Charlie Savage over at the New York Times. His ass is on the line here, too. Right. When all he does is publish, you know, CIA stenography, what they want him to say. Not what some courageous CIA whistleblower wants him to say. But what, you know, the the top commanders want him to print. But still, I mean, he and and all the others at the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, anybody, the Wall Street Journal, anybody who deals in uh, classified information at all are in severe jeopardy if this precedent is set. And where are they all? They don't like him because he published the DNC leak, which wasn't hacked by Russia anyway, had nothing to do with Russia anyway. But that helped get Trump elected. And therefore, Assange is what, a Russian agent or a non-state hostile intelligence agency, something. And they throw him under the bus. They sacrifice him to Moloch. Like, now they're going to get away. Now everything's going to be fine. Again, these same people who published, you know, at just the the, the papers that I mentioned there, the the Post, the Times, the Journal, etc., just a few of those. Between them, publish hundreds and hundreds of articles based either primarily on something in the WikiLeaks or at least have somewhere in there as State Department cables from 2007 verify, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? Where at least they are cited as partial corroboration of the truth in those stories. At the very least, hundreds, probably thousands, just at those few papers. And when you're talking about around the world, probably 10,000 news stories, certainly thousands upon thousands upon thousands of news stories. In fact, you can just put in Google as State Department cables show, as the WikiLeaks reveal, phrases like that, and you will get thousands and thousands and thousands of results. I mean, real results from publications around alternative and mainstream uh, because of all of the absolutely important and newsworthy stuff in there. And remember, too, back when they arrested Manning and, you know, began the campaign to demonize Assange, the whole story was that these two have blood on their hands, blood on their hands, because the stuff that they've released. Oh, it's so top secret. It's going to get all of our informants rounded up and their throats cut. It's going to get, you know, all of our spies, uh, you know, behind enemy lines killed and all these things. None of that was true. None of it. And Robert Gates, the secretary of defense, admitted it. And at uh, Chelsea Manning's court-martial, the prosecutor admitted it, that there was no evidence to that. Hear me? No evidence. The prosecutor at the court-martial admitted they had no evidence that anyone was killed because they were named in the WikiLeaks. Their operation was revealed in the WikiLeaks. What they put out, the Manning leak, was essentially secret, not top secret just regular old secret level information. And they put that on the SIPR you know, after September 11th, they put a lot more information on those internal government networks, knowing that there was a higher risk of leaks, but judging that the importance of information sharing was more important. And for this level of material, which was confidential and secret level, that it was a risk worth taking. And it probably was. Even, you know, knowing that the leak came out and was published at WikiLeaks. Um, Because there were no consequences in terms of, you know, like you would expect in the rumors. Like spies behind Russian lines getting caught and executed or, you know, some kind of thing like that. Nothing like that happened. You know, all that happened was the people got a taste of the truth of what was really going on under the empire. You know, that was what was wrong. That was... All this blood on their hands. What they meant was this stuff is embarrassing, right? Because there's no accountability. It's not like anyone working for uh, W. Bush or Hillary Clinton, you know, the Barack Obama government went to jail over stuff in the WikiLeaks, no matter how ugly some of it was. You know, nobody went to jail. I mean, you know, they admitted they lied about the number of combat deaths in Iraq. They lied about, um, you know, uh, continuing to turn people over to the Bada Brigade and Wolf Brigade to be tortured to death. And all of this stuff. Nobody went to jail. It was embarrassing. Pete. It was the worst that they had on him. And that's and then so that and that's what he's being charged with, right? None of this, you know, for any liberals who are saying, "Well, serves him right for serving the Russians' agenda for Trump or whatever." First of all, that was complete crap. Never happened anyway. But secondly, that doesn't have anything to do with the charges here. There's no Russia. This is about the Manning leak. That's what he's being prosecuted for. The heroic. Bradley/ slash Chelsea Manning leak to WikiLeaks, the Iraq and Afghan war logs, the State Department cables, the Guantanamo files, and this is some of the most, again, you know under undergirding underwriting much of the best journalism of the last decade is based on this stuff. Um, it's absolutely crucial that this stuff came forward. and um, and and so yeah, so everything is on the line for the freedom of the press in this country, if they are successful in extraditing this guy and prosecuting him, then that puts all of national security journalism in America, you know, in severe jeopardy, you know? And you know what, that's what I meant to say on Kennedy the other night and the Fauci answer, you know, you have so little time to answer on that show. And then you only get one answer per question and, ah! but, and you know me, I like explaining, but that was one thing I wanted to say about the Fauci thing and the Wuhan and all that. This is why they got Julian Assange locked up. Because if he was out, we would already know the truth. That's what WikiLeaks is. WikiLeaks is where the people who know the truth can get it to the people. And that's why he's in solitary confinement. After the bogus sexual assault accusations have already been completely retracted. After that case has been completely dropped. He's, he's being held now on skipping bail on some questions that they don't even want to ask him anymore. And it's because he's too good at his job. That's it.
0: Well, you know, and it's, it's also important to point out that depending on what was being released, the left would be pro him or for him. You know, when it, when it hurt, when it made Bush look bad, everything was fine. When it made, Mm Obama or especially Hillary Clinton look bad, then, you know, it's not. Well, that's not good. Um, Mm -hmm. The right was terrible on the Manning leak because they totally bought into uh, the whole blood on his hands, blood on his hands thing. Even people that I knew who were on the right had to explain had to explain to them. I'm talking about regular people because they just buy the line. They don't go. They don't go any deeper that, you know, for all the screaming of fake news fake news everything they know about waco and the manning leak and you know everything like that they get from the fake news you know so it's like (laughs) complete hypocrites and um
1: that's such an important point but before you go on because i'll forget that what you just said there that both sides such as they are have reason to hate the guy right when what it should be is okay well look I'm mad that he hurt Hillary Clinton, but man, that Manning leak was so important or look, I'm mad at him for the Manning leak, but hell yeah. He helped take down Hillary Clinton at least. Right. Instead of people being positive and looking at the good that he's done for their side. Instead, they hate him and they all forsake him. It's disgusting, man.
0: And and to go back to like the accusate, the sexual accusations and everything. Um, I mean, Stacy like read all that, read all like the interviews and stuff like that. I mean, the police were like taking the, like one of the women would say, well, he did this. And then they go, no, no, actually, no, I, I misremembered. He didn't do that. And they'd in, they'd include the thing that she the person had just corrected. I mean, it was just right. a witch hunt right Absolutely. from the start. It was like, I mean, if there's anything that is even close to being like the truth is that one of them was upset because he may have taken a condom off. And that's like really the only thing that was like I mean, those women walked out of the interview like, well, I mean, they asked us questions, but nothing happened. And then everybody just blew, you know, they just blew it up and just basically made stuff up. Yep. You know, yeah, so, and, and, I mean,
1: and one of the women said so. One of the women said, hey, man, they have me quoting, you know, they quote me saying things I never said. I mean, this right. is crazy. She was outraged by it. You know, one of yeah. the women was. Um, and, and, just, and it just goes so to show
0: you it just goes to show you how much power the friggin CIA has, because, I mean, that's that's the Swedish authorities. That's right. And listen, so here's what happened, man. And you can find this. Um, uh,
1: I should have this repost on my own website somewhere in the fair use section for safekeeping or something man. It's really important. This guy, his name is Nils Melzer, N-I-L-S-M-E-L-Z-E-R. He's the U.N. special rapporteur on torture. I think that's how you say that. And so he wrote a thing about people were bugging him and bugging him to look into this. And he kept saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And thinking it's just too partisan and whatever his problem was. He didn't want to do it. Then he looked into it, but he has the jurisdiction to look into it, right? He has the authority to look into it in a, in a real way. So they had to turn, I don't know if they had to, they, they cooperated in turning over documents to him and all of these things. And he wrote up this whole thing about what a sham it was. And about, and he gets really specific on what you just said. CIA putting pressure on the Swedes. What do you mean you let him go? You had your hands on Assange and you let him leave the damn country? Fix it. And the and the Swedes go, okay, whatever you say, Americans, and then go and put the pressure on the British and whatever. Where, again, in other words, this is pure persecution under the color of law. Right? This has nothing to do with enforcing the law and everything to do with. American intelligence agencies have a vendetta against this guy and they want his ass and they'll do anything to get him. Yep. And this guy Nils Melzer and people got to read this report It's jaw dropping stuff. I tried to get him on the show, but maybe I should try again to see if I can get him on the show. Cause I talked to him, I, I wanted to talk to him before and I never heard from him, but, um, but I'm pretty sure we ran that at antiwar.com as the spotlight and everything. Like it was such a, such an important story where, um, and especially because he, he as he says, he came to it really reluctantly, um, but then was like, man, this is just unbelievable what they're doing to him. I think that was what it was. He didn't believe the accusations could possibly be true, that the prosecution was this political rather than for a good reason. You know what I mean? And then he was like, well, <laughs> you guys are right. This is purely political and and not for good reason at all. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, really ugly stuff, man. I
0: mean, yeah, it's just awful. What's funny is, um, you know, side note: Stacy and I met because she like saw me on Twitter, and she goes, "What's your opinion of the Julian Assange thing?" And I'm like, and "So I just linked her the, a couple of the episodes we did on Julian Assange, and that's how we started talking." Oh, that's she's great. In, yeah. Because she's been into the she's been behind the whole Julian Assange thing. Now, now she's like she's like some of the Julian Assange people are really, really crazy. <laughs> it's like so they're like some of them are like hardcore and crazy. It's like you almost have to stay away from some of them yeah, <laughs> because right. they're hardcore. But I mean, if there is if there is any chance of public opinion being swayed, it's going to be by people who, um, you know, more people who know about this and make a stink.
1: Yeah. And look, like we talked about the mainstream media just completely throwing him under the bus is somebody's got to stand up for this guy. This is crazy. And again, forget him. Like, what if you hate him? What about the First Amendment? What about the right of reporters to publish the truth that they find out and not have to feel like they might go to jail away from their wife and children and ability to protect them? What are they what are we going to do? when you know it would be funny right is if the lies and the times and the post really fall off for a while so they could figure out their new algorithm
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: they're afraid to publish well geez these lies are highly classified i don't know if we should go through um i don't know it's amazing
0: how, it's amazing how much power the salzburgers have huh
1: it's pretty incredible man the new york times is something else and and love them or hate them you got to you got to read them anyway. You know what I mean? Well, you got to hate them, but you got to know what they're saying. Um, it's too bad Charlie Savage has me blocked. I would prefer to be able to continue to harass him. Um, and, and I pick on him. You know what? The reason I pick on Charlie Savage is because he used to be a decent reporter when he wrote for the Boston Globe. In fact, you know, he'd done a couple of important things for the New York Times as well. And if you compare him to... Um, well, Michael Gordon's at the Wall Street Journal now, but like compared to David Sanger, or Scott Shane or Mark Mazzetti. I don't know. Any of those guys, William J. Broad. I and mean, these guys are horrible. They are horrible. So I always thought Savage, like I kind of respect, you know, I don't think that's really right. There's really only one reporter at The New York Times that I respect anymore at all. and That's Thomas Gibbons Neff, the war veteran combat yeah. reporter, you know, war reporter. Um, And he's pissed me off a couple of times with some things that I don't think were, you know, held together very well. But but I still respect him. I don't think there's another reporter The New York Times I could name that I have any respect for whatsoever at this point. You know, Sanger especially is a monster. I don't even know if that guy's a journalist or if he's just an Israeli spy or what his problem is. But he's a damn liar. I'll tell you that.
0: I had that Israeli um Israeli writer Ashley Lindbergh uh Lindberg on my show um and he um wrote the book The Grey Lady Winks where he just goes through like all of like basically like all of the bodies that that the New York Times has on their um on their hands by oh, he, wow. he, yeah he starts with like World War 1 goes through um them simping for Hitler um, all, you know, all of these things and just goes all the way up to, um, he comes all the way up to the modern day. And it's a really good read. It's really, we, we only did like a, a half hour, 35 minutes, but I mean, it was really good. I mean, that's he, cool, um, man. Send
1: me that link, would you? I really yeah, yeah.
0: gotta, I gotta find time to go drive laps around
1: town so I can listen to people's <laughs> shows. I don't have time yeah, to yeah. listen. Well, Ashley uh, Rinberg.
0: Really Ashley Rinberg. Sorry. I was trying to remember his name. Okay. But yeah, he's uh he's really, he, he, He's one of those guys who's probably on the left, but is like really like real red pilled on all of this stuff.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I published in the book, uh, my email exchange or part of my email exchange with Charlie Savage, where he's saying, you know, you've taken the lessons of Iraq War too too far. And that was 20 years ago. He says like in 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 um, dashes, you know, 20 years ago now. We got Iraq wrong. And then you just take those lessons way too hard because, in fact, like mostly we publish the truth about us. And I'm just thinking, man, the New York Times, I never even mind the weapons of mass destruction lies. How about the EFP lies in 2007, which could have led us straight into war with Iran? How about all the lies about Gaddafi was going to murder every last man, woman and child in Benghazi? How about the lies about Bashar al-Assad and Sarangas, And for that matter, how about all the lying by omission? about the atrocities of the al-Nusra terrorists during the Syria war. And, you know, these guys, how about all of the lies? Oh, my God, the lies of Broad and Sanger. Sanger and Broad, really. Sanger's the more responsible of the two for it. You know, all of their hype about Iran's civilian nuclear program. My God. It's like George uh, Carlin. You could beat a man to death with the Sunday New York Times. Like, yeah, you could with the lies that David Sanger wrote in there they're heavy, man. And, and, and so, yeah, no, I've, I've learned the lesson. Charlie Savage is right. I learned the lesson of Iraq war two, and it's held all along and it's helped to protect me from believing other lies in the times in the 20 years since, man, you know, and he even says, he goes, look, your way would have prevented what happened in Iraq. That's true. But my way, what? I forgot what he says. I, what, what could possibly be the other side of the argument? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, you know? where do you
0: go after that? After yeah, you give that up, oh, do you...
1: Yeah, we would just you would just never read another national security story ever again. That's your choice, you know? Anyway. Oh, and one more on that. Wait a minute. Hell, we can end on this. Havana syndrome. And you can read about this in New York Times. And one day they'll debunk it. In the New York Times, it's just cricket, stupid. And, and you know, hung over State Department losers, whoever these weenies are, you know. Um, and then they'll turn right around and be like, oh, no, it's deadly serious, the Savannah Syndrome. We think the Russians are zapping our State Department and CIA employees with a microwave brain ray, which does not exist at all. And wait, let me check. I interviewed this lady yesterday i think it's probably not up yet Uh, but there's this lady wrote a piece for foreign policy cheryl rofer is her name no it's not up yet it will be up at the uh, institute and at scottwharton.org but she wrote this thing for foreign policy where she worked at los alamos national laboratory for decades and she's like look man We tried to make microwave ray guns. They don't work, (laughs) you know, and certainly like the amount of power it would take and the range that you would have to be in. And how do you get it to cook the inside of somebody's brain without cooking their skin first? (laughs) You know, like you don't have even the slightest scorch on your ear, but oh, your brain is all frazzled, huh? Maybe you should drink less. Um, yeah. Anyway. The whole thing is, is completely preposterous and then it just keeps spreading and spreading and spreading and and you know i don't know who it was who made this point originally but one of the accusations is that the russians must have used this brainway uh brain ray on american um diplomats in i forgot if it was in beijing or where it was in china but somewhere in china and then whoever this expert was was saying look man can say a lot of things about the chinese you cannot tell me there's just no way in the world you're going to convince me that the chinese allowed the russians to shoot the americans with a damn brain ray on their soil Seriously. it just didn't happen That's it didn't stupid. happen okay Get the hell out of here it's no brain ray and it's amazing cuz they keep believing they believe it and you know there's this top top secret top level group of scientists at the pentagon called jason I forgot what it stands for, but it's all capitals, Jason. And it's, you know, top level group of scientists. And um, Jason Leopold got their new study. And it says that this is crazy. It's crickets. Dum-dum. That's all. It, it started in Havana because that's where the crickets are. And, um, and then that's the end of that. And then just after that, I mean, Leopold published that in BuzzFeed. Um, what, three weeks ago? And then two weeks ago, or one week ago, Julia Ioffi has a new one in, I forgot, I'm sorry, if it was the Atlantic, I think it's in the Atlantic, it might be the New Republic, I'm pretty sure it's in the Atlantic, saying, yeah, this is happening. And not only that, but we have medium confidence that it's happening, and there have been plenty of other times where we struck back against enemies based on only medium confidence. So what are we waiting for? That's again like the subtitle of the article. You know, a journalist demanding some kind of response, some some kind of violent response, evidently against a Russian brain ray that no one can prove exists at all, and that I have to tell you, Pete,
0: I really doubt exists at all. <laughs> man. I just you know, know you know, I'm I'm pretty open to conspiracies, and when I heard this one, I was like, you guys are out of your mind. Seriously. You guys are out of your mind, especially especially that whole thing of the Russians were using it on Chinese soil. Oh, yeah. I mean, Come on, they, and on India. Do people really think the, the Chinese? Yeah, people think the Chinese and the Russians are really that close? I mean that the that the, the, the Chinese would go to bat for the Russians like that? They yeah. don't like In each. They don't way, like yeah. each other. You know what we got to do, man? Um, on. on the next episode. Yeah. Oh, and I'm sorry,
1: I should have put in Russiagate in my giant list of things the New York Times got wrong there. The entire Russiagate scandal about Trump's alleged ties to the Russians, where the entire thing was a hoax, from the DNC server leak all the way through. Not one, not one of those claims held up by the end of the day. It's an absolute disgrace, as it lies on the level of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Just absolutely unforgivable. And I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: I think the next episode, since we've concentrated on China a lot in the previous yeah. episodes, maybe we need to talk a little bit about that article you sent me from foreign policy about the uh Chinese credit system.
1: Oh, yeah, that's very interesting. And you know what, man? I want to go back and listen to your great would you talk about that interview you did with your friend that's been living in China for how long? Yeah, he's
0: been living he's been living in Beijing for twenty six years now. Mm-hmm. And, and what he, is his name know, again? His name is Scott Freeman. That's actually his real name. His uh-huh. real name is Scott Freeman. Great. And he um, yeah, he's like, I've been living there for 25 years and I don't even know what this I've never experienced this Chinese credit score system. Yeah. So he's like, I'll just, I would- I'll
1: just mention real quick that, you know, we could go through it. Maybe I should interview the guys who wrote it or something, but uh, in foreign policy magazine, they go, look, this is basically a way to keep keep up with corrupt small business owners who rip off their customers and stuff like that is basically all it is. It doesn't apply to everybody. And it's basically like a credit system for entrepreneurs. You know,
0: a we'll have system. one here. We'll have one here before China, before China has one. China yeah. doesn't have China's infrastructure is falling apart. They don't have the infrastructure to do anything like that. They have much bigger problems at this point than um, than running that, which really doesn't he doesn't exist on a wide scale I mean, his, he's married. He's been married to a Chinese woman for over 20 years. She, her and her family have no idea what this is. And they're not she's not like, you know, she's not upper crust Chinese. Right. I so mean, he, I think
1: even in that article, they say this is in small parts of China. This is not all of China. You're talking about a billion people live there more
0: than yeah. a billion and, people in
1: this massive country if they're
0: doing it it's probably to people who they're trying to keep track of people who have a bad you know have a bad reputation in business because you know what he was telling me is he's like China's like an agorist paradise you can go there and start a business in a day you can do business you can do business with banks without without any ID you know you could like do you can have deposits in multiple banks and everything like that he's like he's like it's not the greatest country in the world but he's like you people If you know what you're doing, you can have more liberty there than you can have here. Yeah, And look, people, you know, I think anybody listening to you and I talk about
1: this, right, uh, you know, at this point already know this. But, you know, for people who don't understand or can only look at these things in these kind of binary ways, none of this is an apologia for the Chinese system or the, the red flag of the Communist Party or any of that stuff. It's just the same as with David Koresh. Or with Saddam Hussein, or the Ayatollah, or Donald Trump, or anybody else, false accusations are false, and they don't deserve to stand. And they, they, you know, lies should be taken down. And when it's especially when it's our government targeting and demonizing another government on the planet, then we owe it to the people to make sure that they've got the real context. That you know, I was on a radio show in in Chicago last week. Um, I wish I had recorded it because it actually went really well. And, and it started out, I can't remember what all we started out talking about. I guess the war on terrorism and stuff like that. Um, but then at the end, he asked me about China. We set it up in such a prejudicial way. And I was just like, sorry, man, that's all just a bunch of war propaganda. None of that is right. And I kind of went at him pretty hard. And but by the end of it, he was like, yeah, I don't know. Because see, the thing is, you know, I, I described all their weaknesses. And how they're I, essentially, I said that, you know, this is already in a far overextended empire. You know, they got many of the same problems we have for the same reasons and all of their inflationary money and this and that. And he goes, yeah, but I mean, but they're communists, you know. And I go, well, listen, man, I'm a libertarian. And hell, my wife's from the Soviet Union, right? You can't find anyone more anti-communist than me. I'm just saying, be realistic about what we're talking about. This is the right wing of the Communist Party. They abandoned Marxism 45 years ago because they were starving to death by the tens of millions. And they said, not, you know what? We need property. We need markets. We need prices. And and Gerald Ford sent uh, Milton Friedman over there to teach Deng Xiaoping about how, man, you need prices, Deng. And then Deng was like, okay, that makes sense to me, Milton. Thank you. And then and they didn't really get started until like the late 80s and early yeah. 90s, but you look at the amount of growth and, and what's happened, it's the greatest, the greatest increase of the standard of living of the most amount of people in the history of the world, in the shortest amount of time in the history of the world ever. It's absolutely a miracle for humanity. It's wonderful. And then, so the degree to which their commie, as all libertarians understand, is the degree of their weakness right? The more Marxist they are, the poorer they are, the more disorganized their society is, the more screwed up everything is. And then the more capitalist they are, well, the more reason for us to be friends with them and trade with them and maintain the status quo anyway, and, and try to find where we can get along. Because at the end of the day, they got H-bombs. We can't fight them. We can not fight them. They've got H-bombs. So we got to figure out better ways to proceed. And the first thing to do is just forget all the propaganda. Just drop all the propaganda and just deal with what the truth is. There's no reason anybody has to have an em- any Texan or Ohioan has to have some emotional attachment to a narrative about China. What do you care? How about just accept the truth? And if you have to change your mind about some things, that's okay too. You know, if I if somebody convinces me that, no, I think they're going to roll into North Korea. All right. Well, let's talk about that. I'm, I'm sure. willing to hear you out. Right. But I ain't convinced yet uh, by all the hype. And um, I think well, it's yeah. important that people realize that there's no reason in the world why somebody like me, a skateboarder from Austin, would be a partisan of Ayatollah Khamenei. I'm not. It's just I'm calling David Sanger a liar because David Sanger is a liar. And comedy is innocent of a lot of the charges that David Sanger likes to hurl at him. That's my job. You know, it's, I'm taking my own side. I'm loyalty to my I'm loyal to my own mind and and what I know to be true. And uh, and then that's it. So I know people get really upset about, oh, I don't know why you're siding with the terrorists or why you're siding with the commies or why you're siding with the whoever. But it's just reality. That's all it is.
0: We, I, you know, and if people are really, really worried about China, then I mean, I don't mean to sound like a right winger, but we need to start building stuff here again. We need to start manufacturing stuff here again. I mean, we need to not be so reliant upon, you know, China. You know, I mean, yeah, I, I really we, agree with
1: that. I mean, we, exported,
0: I think- we, we basically exported our pollution. I mean, that's literally what we we exported our pollution, which was a good thing. And everything else was like, I mean, we get cheaper stuff and everything like that. But it's like, you know, I mean, being so it's like to me, it's the difference between if supply lines run out. You know, I run right down the street to Giant Eagle to buy my food. But if they're if they're empty. Then I want to have food here that I've either grown or I've, you know, things like that's an easier way for an individual to um, make sure that when supply if supply lines go bad. Well, then, yeah, I have my stuff.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I'm a big subscriber to the capitalist peace theory, which is my alternative to the democratic peace theory.
0: Yeah. Um, no, I, and, I, I, and I know what it is. And, and I agree with yeah. it 100%. Um, so we need, we need to maintain trade uh,
1: with all major powers on the planet, you know, as much as possible. And look, everybody knows that it's government intervention that has caused all the supply chain crises right. here with all the different lockdowns and all these things. So in other words, if we can just get government to back off, get the hell out of the way, the free market will take care of it. And right. And by the way, that does go for, um, You know, our Navy essentially subsidizing all of this trade by providing security for all of these companies on the high seas. Um, I'm all for ending all corporate socialism. And that means that Walmart and whoever else, they better provide their own security. The the taxpayer should not have to pay to protect them from piracy if they want to drive back and forth between China with boats full of goods. That's their own problem. And maybe that would push their margin up so high that they would stop buying so much stuff from China and would start buying more and more stuff from companies making things here. But it's got to be prices on the ledger that work that out in as free of a market as we can get it to be. You know, Bovard has a great new article at Mises today about how protectionism doesn't work. And it's just immoral and wrong and and screwy. And it just creates, you know, all all these same disincentives for the same reasons. You know, Harry Brown, I remember Harry Brown used to say that, like, look, I mean, if the government is preventing Americans from trading with Chinese people, then that's communism, like to a degree, right? So you're going to adopt communism in America in order to try to, you know, what, bankrupt communism over there or some kind of thing like that. The whole thing is crazy and self-defeating. And that there were people who said all along, we should boycott the Soviet Union completely isolate them and sanction them and, 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 uh, you know, separate them from all international trade and finance in order to hasten their collapse. But the thing is, again, you got to adopt that kind of a regime on on your own shores in order to enforce that. And, And that kind of that all powerful sort of an empire, maybe if we'd had totally open trade relations with them all along, communism would have ended that much sooner, you know, rather than later. If, um, because it wasn't, it wouldn't just be a matter of propping up the state. It would be a matter of strengthening the entire economy, which means millions of people who are not, you know, subsumed under the Communist Party apparatus at the very top, but more and more power in the hands of more and more people diffuse across the country. So, you know, it's hard yeah, to say with counterfactuals and all of that, but it seems that containment didn't work. It seems that what really ended the Soviet Union was when they abandoned containment and urged the Soviets into overexpansion, and especially into Afghanistan, but also into Latin America and Africa in the 1980s. And that was what really led, you know, one of the things that really helped lead to the collapse collapse of the USSR. So keeping them all boxed in like that seems to have been counterproductive. And And then how did Reagan negotiate? How did they end the Cold War? They negotiated it. Reagan became friends with Gorbachev and said, look, we can do business. You know, he's a hawk his first term and a dove his second because he figured out that he could really do it. And he did it. And really, you know, the Cold War was over by the time Bush Sr. was sworn in in 1989. You know, the wall was already coming down.
0: Well, one, one of the main reasons that I question the whole export, every export production to China is that books have been written about how basically that idea came out of Harvard Business School in the 80s. Harvard Business School started teaching that that was one of their main things. And I have a tendency to not trust anything that comes out of Harvard. I'm I'm with with Thomas Sowell on that, you know, so I want I want completely unrestricted free trade. I think that, you know, if you and I want to trade something, we should be able to trade whatever we want. And if me and someone in China want to trade something, we should trade whatever we want. But man, this system is just really, really screwed. And just um, it seems like some things were you know if something came out like i said something comes out of harvard i'm just like oh man why were they teaching that what was you know you know i mean we know that the wars are planned in harvard georgetown places like that so it's like you know
1: well it's the bribe right i mean essentially what it is like for for korea and japan and for the europeans the deal is you let us keep our military there and keep, you know, open a neutral trade between all the different players. And um, we'll drop all our tariffs and let you sell all your stuff to our, to our people without a markup. And that's the deal. And that was essentially the deal that they're trying to bring the Chinese in on. Not that they're going to put our troops in China, um, like in Japan or anything like that. But essentially bring them into the American imperial fold as much as possible in that way that um you know we'll give you open access to our markets in exchange for you you know at least deferring to us on some matters of security and things like that uh rather than having too independent of your own policy in the region and that kind of deal and um so that's the trade-off but the thing is we should just drop the second part of that and just have open trade you know sheldon richmond is as an economist i'm a great anti-war guy you know what the hell do i know but uh Sheldon has written a lot about how, you know, the giant sucking sound of jobs to Mexico and China under the free trade agreements of the Clinton years, that there's something to that, but that in fact, in, uh, industry in America, manufacturing in America is like as high as it's ever been. There's like as many manufacturing jobs as there ever has been. So many, many have gone away, but many new ones have been created and, um, um, And at the same time, it's really what's really cost the number of manufacturing jobs overall in terms and also in terms of like percentages of jobs within certain industries is the advance of robots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, more and more assembly line work being done automatically rather than by people standing in rows. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, I don't know the exact proportions, but I know Sheldon says that, you know, really it's the automation more than China or Mexico that has the most to do with undermining blue collar manufacturing jobs in this country. And that even then that kind of thing is overstated that there really are, you know, lots of, of high quality jobs along those lines. You might have to move from your old Rust Belt town to somewhere else. Um, but, but not out of the country.
0: Um, People are saying that there's a lot of job openings right now and, um, you know, so I i don't know if that's true or not, because I'm not in not looking, but apparently there are a lot of people who are hiring right now. And and now it's ridiculous, man. Even here, um, small town, Ohio, like the Kentucky fried chicken starts at $13 an hour. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, well, I mean, that's
1: that's why there's such a shortage, right? Is is huge part of that is because of price inflation. And yeah. so the companies can't raise their wages high enough to get people in the door without having to raise their prices on their board so high that their customers start staying home. Yeah. So it's the Federal Reserve's fault, right? It's a real problem. And I know it's been like this my whole life, Pete, and I probably always will be. And when the prices go up, the first thing they do is they blame hourly workers. They go, well, you know what's happened is all these you know, chicken fryers are demanding $13 an hour to start. And that's what's driving up the cost of everything. It's just the most damn lie, right? It's like pretending the told is making nukes or the Chinese social credit or whatever. They just say it and then people accept that. But why are wages going up? Wages going up because people won't work for the old price because the old price won't cut it because the government has devalued the currency. That's why. And I mean, I remember watching Alan Greenspan testify under oath to this in the 1990s. Oh, yeah. Any more upward pressure on wages could trigger inflation. It's like, you son of a bitch. You know, these are the people, the the hourly workers are the last people in line to get a cost of living increase. You know, an executive vice president, if he doesn't get his cost of living increase, he might go somewhere else. He's got skills in demand. The lowest level hourly workers don't have skills in demand. They're not as free to move around and find someone who's going to give them the cost of living increase when they need it. They're the last ones to get it. And then they take the rap. It's sick, man. And but it is causing and, you know, for smart libertarians out there, there ought to be all kinds of great investment opportunities based on the distortions that our government has caused in every one of our markets across the society. I mean, look at all the people dumping currency into, um, you know, every shit coin under the sun that's coming out right now. Um, And and, and who knows what, who knows what the, 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 the follow on effects of all of this price inflation. I mean, there's plenty of historical kind of lessons that we can learn from it, but there's also going to be all new consequences that we can't even see coming distortions and bubbles in areas that, you know, there's going to be hell to pay a decade into the future. Now, you know.
0: Yeah. The scene and the unseen.
1: I'm telling you, right. I'm gonna. I'm trying to get uh, mcmackin on the show tomorrow because I, I really like mcmackin He's, you know, one of the best guys at Mises. And what I like about him is, I don't know if it's daily or what, but I know he keeps track of M1, M2, M3, all this, and he can explain what it means and why you should care, and it, which is totally interesting and important if you're yeah. into that kind of stuff, you know, which I am
0: he's brilliant so, um, he, he's brilliant he really he's one of the best writers out there i mean he's like literally he's i mean I, I hate to say this but like the amount of stuff that he puts out and the quality of the stuff he puts out so is approaching will Grig level yeah i
1: mean he's he's a badass no question yeah. about
0: it <laughs> absolutely yeah. let's get uh, out of here man
1: yeah we should i just thought of um a punchline that should have been in my routine at the Tom Woods thing. What was it? It was just, nah, i have ruined it. I can't get
0: it. Oh, went in before, there somewhere. before we go, I want to say, um, I just, while we were on here, new episode released of my podcast with Sam Jacobs from ammo.com. Who's oh, a great. Love Return him, Institute, man. Great guy. Um, talking about righteousness and force and basically going over the history of progressivism in the United States and how, you know, they, we're doing it for the people you know the reason we're the, the reason we're taking all your liberties away is because we care about you kind of thing and um yeah, yeah it was so james jenderman listened to it uh earlier and he said it was just brilliant he said awesome. yeah because yeah sam's a good dude so another
1: great dude hey by the way um i was actually just thinking about this earlier today that i owe sam an email because they used to publish their stuff at our site all the time and then they just kind of quit probably because i hadn't talked to them about it and too long in a row or something like that. But if you want to talk to Sam and tell him that those boys, all of them, uh, him and Alex and whoever, all of those guys over at ammo.com are welcome to to write for us still, you know, and it's high quality stuff, man. Oh, yeah. They were oh. really, really great stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, you know, our shirts, when people look in the right-hand margin, those Libertarian Institute shirts, that's their, that's their group. Libertas Bella. That's the ammo.com guys that put out the Libertarian Institute. Schwag there, so people are always asking me about my shirts and sweatshirts and stuff. That's where we get them all. And Top Lobster was generous enough to allow us to give uh, his art to them to to uh, put out. You know, uh, your shirts and my shirts too for our shows
0: and all that. So, I just want to finish by saying that we go to the Libertarian Institute and donate. We're doing our annual donation. We we run on donations, and um, one of the most, even maybe even more than crypto ammunition may be um of an appreciating an appreciating um item at this time so if you go so to ammo, ammo
1: to the libertarian institute
0: <laughs> if you go to ammo.com forward slash podcast you get twenty dollars off of any order over um two hundred dollars and i went there today and they have stuff in stock a lot Great. of stuff in stock so head on over there
1: all right, cool. Yep. Very good deal. And, and thank you, everybody. Look, it's, you know, I forgot the numbers. More than 100 people have donated to us so far. And I, I, I really want to say I'm ex- uh, extremely grateful about that. And I know the entire crew is extremely grateful. Um, and so thank you, everybody, uh, for that. And we'll see you back here in two weeks.